Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is we're taking, yet again, our occasional journeys to the world of Warhammer. Now, what I've actually decided to do this time round is because this one word is dripping in all versions of the game. And that is knights. As in knights in shining armor, not hot city knights or something like that. So basically, because there's so much stuff around knights, armored warriors, etc., I did do a whole episode on armor. So I will be returning to that a little bit in this particular episode, but not so much in the next episode on this that I've decided to do one purely on Age of Sigmar and one purely on Warhammer 40,000. And yes, considering there'll be breaks in between, if you just stumbled across this podcast because of the Warhammer, hi, yes, there are lots of episodes of Warhammer, probably more than a dozen now, I would guess. Eleven! The number of the day is eleven! Wonderful! <laughs> but at the same time, we don't just do Warhammer here. So I've done let's say, adjacent to Warhammer, I've taken something like Lord of the Rings and shown how there's obviously some pretty historical influences in that particular book, movie, game, etc. It's a whole phenomenon in and of itself. But, you know, I've done other things as well, video games such as Elden Ring, or we could talk about a pop song like Stand and Deliver. So basically, I take anything that has sort of seeped out into the public consciousness and said, hey, do you know what? Either deliberately or sometimes subconsciously, there's influence from the past. So Age of Sigmar, this is the oldie worldie one of... Warhammer. And as I said previously, there's the end times, which we're now past, which is now why we're in the Age of Sigmar, as opposed to Warhammer Fantasy Battle. And this absolutely has a critical thing to do with knights, because you used to have, at the time of Fantasy Battle, these two large human powers of Bretonia and the Empire. And Bretonia is clearly based on medieval France, and the Empire is clearly based on the Holy Roman Empire, roughly the Renaissance era. There are a few basic kind of gunners in there, for example, but they have their own cavalry too. So that 
is easy. All you have to do is type in Bretonnia Knights into Google Images and up flash these knights that are clearly high medieval, full of pageantry. That would not look out of place if you were to do a war game of, let's say, the Battle of Agincourt. Wouldn't quite be historically accurate, but yeah, you get the idea. Saying that, though, they also have griffin riders. That's, of course, not real. So yeah, obviously it goes into high fantasy as well, but actually a lot of Warhammer Fantasy Battle, when you look at the cavalry, almost all of them are based on, they may be a very fantastical version, but they're clearly based on the European heavy cavalry of the Middle Ages. Saying that though, now that we've moved into the Age of Sigmar, things have got even more fantastical, and I personally enjoy that aesthetic. So What's happened is some of the old factions, I've mentioned this in the past, the Tomb Kings were an undead faction, kind of Egyptian-themed sort of mummies and undead and skeletons and zombies and all that good stuff. That actually appeared after I got out of the hobby the first time round. And by the time I got into the hobby the second time round, they'd all been killed off at the end times. So they're just not an army that I know anything about. And indeed, the kind of Bretonnia stuff, I think it was all beginning to form when I was just getting out of the game, out of the hobby in the early 1990s. And really, throughout the 1990s, the lore, L-O-R-E, was built up around it. And nowadays, some of the old armies that have managed to make it into the new world, some of them are pretty much exactly the same, like the Skaven, for example, the Ratmen. But in the case of the Bretonians and Empire, they don't really fit what's going on in the new story. So they still have rules, etc. There is now the Cities of Sigmar faction, which is, in essence, Games Workshop saying to everybody, look, you spent years building this army. You can still use this army. You've got to use it slightly differently and you can add interesting new stuff to it. But here you go. This is still part of the ongoing story. You can still have the same units, although Bretonnia was blown to pieces in the end times. Quite clever, quite nice sort of nudge to the you know to the the faithful who've been following the hobby for decades and indeed there is apparently going to be a warhammer old world basically a return to this fantasy battle before the age of sigma square bases rather than the circular ones but that's still i'm going to guess at least a year to 18 months out into the future so that gives you a little bit of the flavor of what's going on and how games workshops making their money but what this obviously leads to is the fact that in the fantastical world, as I said, so I've mentioned previously the Stormcast. These are people who the great heroes that are reforged, resurrected basically by Sigmar's forces, and they're sort of trapped inside armor. As I said, that sort of evolved over the last five, six years in and of itself. But it's a, it's a cool concept. What's your point? The point is this. They are covered in full plate armor, well, plate mail armor, because they also have any of the gaps. You can see there's either scale armor or chain mail, mail armor is the technical correct term. And they are riding on literally kind of sort of lizard lion type things. And the guys riding on the back, they, yeah, they got big swords, but they're also wizards. You're a wizard, Harry. That's pretty impressive. The ones I've recently painted are literally three of those heavily armored guys flying on the back of dragons because it doesn't get more metal and it doesn't get more fantastical than, of course, heavily armored knights riding dragons. 
course they are. They look awesome. They're pretty good on the battlefield. It's just fun for everyone, unless you're actually fighting them anyway. That kind of stuff I can't give you historical context to. But going a little bit back to the armor and going back to the evolution of the concept of the knight, what everybody gets wrong, not just Warhammer, but movies, TV, video games, is that there is a lot more to a knight than just a guy in armor hitting people over the head on the back of a horse. They're actually a fundamental part of medieval society, which is why they're an interesting conversation to have and where I'll be expanding into some perhaps more weird and wonderful versions of knights. The knights who say ni demand a sacrifice. In the second episode, when I'm talking about Warhammer 40,000, because they actually pick up on different types of knights in a genre, which, of course, has got lots of long-range weapons, las cannons, etc. So, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. Knights have captured Western imagination, like the samurai have captured Japanese imagination. And even today, you can go to, like, medieval banquets, or you can go to, like, live jousting sessions, not only in Europe, but also in America too. That's not to say these things are in any way historically accurate, but you know what? Seeing two guys on horses charging at each other with lances, trying to hit each other in some way in the modern version of it, you know, in the world of CGI and big blockbuster movies and video games, that's still thrilling. There is a real weight to it. You know, you know that because you're watching it live, things could go wrong. This person could be thrown from the horse. The, you know, the javelin is, is meant to sort of break in some way. The lance is meant to break. I mean, they did also in the medieval era of jousting too. But the point here is that something could go wrong. These people genuinely are brave. He needs three points to beat you, so a broken lance won't win it for him. He has to knock you off the horse. I know how to score, Roland. It's, it's interesting that you can still get a crowd together to watch something that people were watching 600 years ago. And you can't say that about everything. Plays, for example, from 600 years ago aren't really filling the theatres of, of London, for example. So let's talk about where knights come from and how they evolved and why the Bretonian ones in particular are very much the end, almost at the point of obsolescence of the knight. Because... We start seeing knights appearing round about 1000 AD. Now, I want to be clear, cavalry have been around for a long old time. Just to, I guess, the evolution of the horse. You've all seen hieroglyphic images of these ancient Egyptians riding around on war chariots. Maybe you've seen the same thing from the lights of the Mesopotamians. And you might be thinking, why? Why don't they just ride the things? And the answer is because horses at that point hadn't quite been bred to take the weight of a fully grown man wearing a bit of armor or, you know, wearing equipment at least on their backs without seriously damaging their backs. So yes, they could pull something, but no, they couldn't really carry anything. So a war chariot with all its limitations, like for example, imagine how easy it is to get over rough terrain on something like that with no suspension. But they were at the time, let's say 1500 BC, they were the pinnacle of mobility and tactics and actual technology on the battlefield. Once we get to, let's fast forward to a bit, to roughly 500 BC, we do have cavalry by then. But interestingly, the stirrup has yet to be invented. 
What's a stirrup? It's that sort of sharp bit that you have on the back of your shoe and that basically jabs into the horse and it makes them move more quickly. So cavalry did exist. They, they weren't quite as maneuverable. We had to wait for the Persians to invent that. A fun fact, the high heel shoe was originally a Persian cavalry invention because that shoe kind of locked into obviously the, the foot rests on either side of the horse, but also allowed them to use things like stirrups as well, which they actually they picked up from the Central Asian nomadic tribes on the Great Asian Steppe. Later on, they'd be called things like Huns and Magyars and Mongols, but at the time, that, that, that's before any of those names meant anything. So there we go. So if you like, this idea of like mobile, more maneuverable horse cavalry comes from Central Asia, Iran. So when you see things like the ancient Greeks, yes, they did kind of have cavalry, but the way they tended to fight, the most efficient way was the, the classic phalanx formation or these very heavily armored infantry basically pushing and a shoving with their lines of contact, lines of soldiers. Okay, so once we've now got the stirrup, once we've got the evolution of the, of the armor, we are starting to see knights post the Roman era in Western Europe. A place where people usually start the story is about 1000 AD. But make no mistake, a knight in 1000 AD was very different to a knight in, let's say, 1415, the year of the Battle of Agincourt. But the structural part of the knight, how the knight fitted into society, was pretty much in place by 1000 AD. What do I mean by that? I mean that they weren't just soldiers. So we get the feudal system. It's something that everybody's taught at school. Most people forget. But the key thing about the feudal system is the king owns everything. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. And therefore, if I am the Duke of Lancaster, that means I, the, the king still owns Lancaster, but I need to give the king rent, basically. Now, as it evolved, sometimes because there was fighting in different countries, it was simply easier to take money, a proper rental system, and then the king would use that money to buy mercenaries or something like that. Okay, however, what it traditionally meant was for this amount of land, I owe you X amount of mounted cavalry, which I have to give you fully paid up, fully armed and armored and equipped. You don't do anything, King, but because I get to rule these lands, I get to have these knights. So I am the Duke of Lancaster and I owe you, let's say, 25 knights when you ask for an army to be mustered at some, some part of the kingdom. And then off we go to fights during the campaigning season, which is late spring summer, early autumn, sort of like four or five months is the best time of the year to go out fighting people because nobody wants to stand around in the field shivering in December. So you've got that idea. Now, the army didn't just consist of knights. There were peasants underneath it. So you've got the king at the top that basically owns everything. Just to complicate things, it's slightly different when it comes to who owns church lands. But let's just put that to one side, shall we? So we've got the king at the top, he owns everything. Then you've got all the senior aristocracy, the dukes, the barons, the counts, all those sorts of names. They're the ones who basically have all the real land. You know, basically all the land is actually carved up into duchies and counties and so on and so forth. And then underneath them, 
they carve up the land again in terms of the knights. So the knights are actually the minor aristocracy. They won't own much land, but and obviously nowhere near like the, the, the amount of land as the, of the duke above them, for example. But they own some land, and on that land there are peasants farming away. So the knight is never meant to do any of the farming. What they're meant to do is look after the local farms in the area. And, as I said, you know, there's the campaigning season, and usually, I told you the length of time, but it's highly rare for an, a knight to actually serve that entire time. Again, part of the feudal system was it was usually more like a couple of months that you would actually be going off campaigning. Any more than that, there'd have to be some kind of special compensation. And also, who's looking after everything when all the barons and knights are off doing the fighting? So you've got peasants at the bottom, so the knights actually spent far more time being administrators than they were being warriors. That's an important thing to remember. And also, you've got the peasant levy as well. What's that mean? Well, there's also infantry in there as well and those are the peasant stocks they do a little bit of training they basically were pretty dirt poor they'd have to be supplied with weapons maybe over the generations grandpa picked up a nice pike in the hundred years war that was passed down generation to generation and so there's a smattering of armor and, and helmets amongst them but it's by no means standards it's basically whatever you could grab as things evolved, particularly in England, is we get the use of peasant archers. More on those in a, in a minute. So we've got these knights. They're actually spending quite a lot of time running the local area, and they're probably doing it from a castle. What's a castle? What's the difference between a castle and a fort? Well, it's a bit like the difference between a warrior and a knight, in the sense that a fort is purely military. It is run by a garrison, has militaristic reasons only. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whereas a castle does do those things. It has a garrison. It's absolutely designed to withstand attack, but it's also the fortified home of a lord. Now, it might be a very senior castle, like something like the Tower of London, that would be a royal castle, for example, or it might be a relatively small castle, which is the family home of a knight who runs the local area. And so you can see that castles are actually quite different to a fortification. Sometimes they are at the center of like a minting process. They're absolutely the epicenter of local administration. And probably the largest hall in the area would be in the castle. And therefore things like you know, listening to court cases might well happen in a castle. So it's where the Lord lives. It's where the money's made. It's where the legalities quite often happen. You can see that a castle is kind of like the epicenter of local power and also happens to be where the knight lives as well. So that's a castle. That's a knight. You can see they're quite different from just being a warrior running around waving a sword. But... Let's just briefly talk about the armor. So about 1000 AD, what they're doing is they're wearing a full male shirt of, I'm saying male, but I mean chain mail, okay? But I, I, I'm, I'm always painfully aware of the time I said chain mail in front of an expert in Leeds Royal Armories, and they sort of told me off for that. But, you know, most people here do not have a PhD in medieval arms and armor. So when I say chainmail, you know what I mean. And all you have to do is look at the Bayer Tapestry. The Bayer Tapestry is remarkable, okay? If every major event from the medieval era had a beautifully woven tapestry, it's not a tapestry, by the way, but this sort of images, everybody likes images. And so of course it's highly stylized. And of course it's very biased to the Norman point of view rather than any sensitivities to the Anglo-Saxons because they lost. But you can just even, even a passing understanding knows that when you see all these people on horseback and they've got these circles inside their coats, that's clearly showing you that they're wearing chainmail armor. So you can see that those coats go all the way down to kind of the knees. There'd obviously be a cut in the middle so you could easily sit on the horse. They wear these kind of conical helmets with nose guards and kind of kite-shaped shields. So that's, all of that makes complete sense when they're on a horse or indeed, you know, fighting on the ground as well because you've got most of your body covered with armor protection. That shield on one side can protect you from arrows. Also, because it's kite-shaped, it's sort of narrow at the bottom. It means it fits on quite nicely when you're on a horse. It means you can kind of move the shield over your chest area if necessary. And of course, that spear will allow would act as a lance, but also on the ground, you can use it to jab. Also, a bunch of you could get together, put, you know, put your shields up and sort of like poke behind the shields with the spears. So it, well, it's really quite a flexible way to, to fight. Swords were used as well. So that's what they would wear then. And it's not really what we think of when we mean knight. 
moving on into the late 11th century, into the 12th century, and the main big difference is we now can see that people even have chainmail gloves as well as just like leather gloves or bare hands. Okay, fair enough. And the other key thing is a full-faced helm. Now it looks more like a knight. Sir Hector, remove your helmet. Uh, my lord, I'm afraid the final blow of the lance has bent it onto my head. You know, it looks like they've got a bucket on their head with a little slit on the front of it so they can see out of it. Great for protecting the actual knight. Hard to breathe in. Your peripheral vision is gone. And also try doing a crusade in something like that. As I mentioned in the armor episode, underneath any of this kind of armor, you would basically have a padded jacket called a gambeson. This helps absorb shocks. It also stops the metal chafing against your skin. You don't want to suddenly get distracted going, ow, 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 you know, it's digging into my arm and then you get your head chopped off. Not a good look, is it? So when you put all this stuff together, you're starting to see it's looking more like what I think a knight is. We start getting plates of armor, things like an entire solid chest plate, but maybe the arms still are covered in chainmail. That's only sort of beginning to come in in the beginning of the 1300s. And really, it's only at the very end of the 1300s, moving into the 1400s, that we finally get to what a Bretonian knight looks like in Warhammer and what everybody has in their head when we say a knight in shining armor. Every single Part of them is covered by a metal plate. It's like an armoured carapace. They kind of almost look insect-like. Now, there are little gaps and places like that. The armour has to flex. The really expensive stuff, those gaps are actually filled in with more chainmail. And basically, the best way to attack somebody like that is with a can opener. I'll grab the can opener. Trying to hit them with a sword is ridiculous. You're not going to do anything. So by this point, waving a sword around isn't going to work. Using a lance will, because A, that could knock them off their horse and they might find it sort of hard to get back up again. And secondly, just that potential of either puncturing or indeed just sheer force can just like wind them, damage their armor, etc. And indeed, once we get into the late 1400s, into the early 1500s, specifically for jousting, this would never be seen on the battlefield, but you've got examples of people where not only are they wearing full plate armor, but there's like an extra bit of armor around the area where they're holding the lance. So it's almost like double armor of, of against like, you know, actual solid steel here to protect these people because jousting, the idea was not meant to kill each other. On a quick point about jousts and things like that, again, if you... If you see a movie and it's sort of set in, let's say, 1200 and they're doing jousting, jousting sort of existed then, but that was not the main event. The main thing were these tournois or melees, as they're also known. And they are hilarious because really what it was, it was a chance for everybody to basically play war games. So you weren't allowed to have sharpened weapons, so no sharpened axes or swords. I mean, you could still get bludgeoned with this stuff. And they would basically have an agreed area. There were spectators, but these areas were usually so large that they might run off into, you know, at the back into the forest and it, you know, nobody could see what was going on. It wasn't like a, a gladiatorial amphitheater or anything like that. And literally hundreds of men would fight in these things. And yes, occasionally deaths did happen. But one of the other things they did is they did actually sometimes capture each other. And well, I say sometimes, this was quite regular, capture each other and hold them for ransom. This is how some very poor knights became rather rich knights as time moved on. 
So you can obviously understand hundreds of knights rampaging around the countryside, smacking each other, crowds cheering in various areas. This is awesome. Great time to see something, but it's also really expensive. And also as the technology changed, I mean, if you really wanted to simulate war in, let's say, 1400, then what you would do is you'd have one side with all the cavalry and all that good stuff, all the guys in armor, and the guys on the other side with arrows. And I guess to make sure nobody gets killed, I, I put some paint on the end of the arrows, and if it hits you, you, you die. In which case, all the knights are going to die very quickly because the arrows win. That's not fair! So, as I mentioned, 1415 is the Battle of, of Agincourt, one of the most famous battles in the Hundred Years' War. Yet again, another example. It happened in Crecy, happened in Agincourt, and it happened in several other places as well where you have these hordes of peasant archers, where basically it does take years to learn how to have the strength to pull a longbow. We can always tell when we do archaeology on battlefield sites who the archers are, because quite often some of their vertebrae, some of their backbones actually fuse together because they keep drawing, keep pulling, keep pulling. People were practicing it regularly out of season. Indeed, there were a number of kings who banned football, not because they were spoil sports or anything like that, but because they didn't want the men being distracted from their duties of learning how to do archery and to instead be playing football. No, back to sort of like drawing these incredibly hard, a proper long bow. The reason it's called a long bow, you can't fire one from the back of a horse. That would be a composite bow or a short bow. Long bows are about six foot tall. And if you can imagine the sort of the the, the twine or sometimes gut used to, to sort of like pull that back so it distorts. That's an incredible amount of draw power. So when you do fire an arrow, and there are lots of different types of arrows, not going to go into that now, but when we talk about arrows, we tend to think about the ones with the triangular ends. Those were great for hunting, great against people who have little armor. It's not going to do anything against a, a knight in shining armor, Jem says in inverted commas. Instead, those ones used at the Battle of Agincourt Looked like an arrow, except at the end, no triangle, a six-inch spike. It looked like a nail at the end because it, you just need penetrating power in that situation. <laughs> so the thing is, by the time we get to the Battle of Agincourt, it isn't knights winning battles anymore. Ba 1066, Battle of Hastings, all the chroniclers said the same thing. It was really unusual because you had one side rooted to the ground, the Anglo-Saxons, only infantry, and you had the other side, the Normans with their mercenaries, and they're sort of like maneuvering all the time. So you get some military historians saying it's incredibly rare for cavalry to win a battle. And I would agree with that. If you want to just look at the sheer facts, it is very rare that cavalry and cavalry alone win the battle. That's the exception that proves the rule. But cavalry are always very good about breaking up these you know, important formations, which were so critical in the ancient world and the medieval world, moving on into the early modern. So if the cavalry could break it up or get around the enemy or change their plans because suddenly they're attacking from the south and everybody's facing the north, whatever it may be, you can understand why that's actually really quite useful on the battlefield. However, once we get to long-range attacks that can neutralize this movement, i.e. these the famous archers at the Battle of Agincourt, Message for you, sir. then what's the point of these very expensive fighters? And also, these are the creme de la creme. These are rich people in whichever country they're fighting in, and they're dying. And they don't want to die. They want the peasants to die for them. So weirdly, the knights we see or what knights we have in our head 
are from the very end of the knightly orders. And one thing that people usually don't realize is, well, yes, most of the death at the Battle of Agincourt was from the archers. Some people argue that it's from drowning in the mud. It's, it's complicated. But one person, one person in that battle died from a handgun. <laughs> now, a handgun at that point was little more than a metal tube in your hand that you fired. It was terrible range, terrible accuracy. But if somebody's up close, it's also one and done. You fire that one shot and who knows what happens next. It's much more efficient to have a weapon in your hand. But one person died in that battle from a handgun, from, from actually being shot rather than stabbed or having arrows piercing them or drowning in the mud, for those of people who want to say that, okay? So we get to jousting at about the same time. These melees are expensive, they're dangerous, people are fed up of being held for ransom. And so by the time you get to something like the Tudor era in England, so this is into the 1500s, everybody still understands this kind of there is, it's interesting, there's a glamour to knightliness even at the time it exists. Someday, I'll be a knight. This is where we get the Mort d'Arthur, the famous book about, I mean, literally, the death of Arthur. So the stories of King Arthur were incredibly popular when knights existed. And this is the thing about King Arthur. Now, I apologise to anybody who wants to sit there and go, well, I think you'll find there's some evidence of a like cavalry officer called Artorius, a Roman cavalry officer who fought against the Saxon invasions in the 400s. It's like, OK, there is very wafer-thin proof of that. But none of that, for starters, he's not a knight. He doesn't have a castle, the idea of chivalry. So chivalry comes from chevalier, which is the French for knight. Ritter, for the record, is the German for knight. And these are all three very different words. But this idea that they have to stick to rules, they're part of the culture, part of society. They're not allowed to till the soil. That's a peasant's job. They must be loyal to the king. And so the idea of like courtly love and the idea that a knight also has to be sort of like loyal to his, an oath of fealty, literally an oath of loyalty to your, uh, to your superior was something that was standard, but it was turned into almost something mythological through the various poems and books about King Arthur and other sort of brave knights of old, as it were. It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. And so when they're talking about King Arthur, even if there was a King Arthur, there wasn't. Even if there was, he would have come from an Anglo-Saxon culture, which is, as I've already pointed out, the Anglo-Saxons fought not on horseback. They sometimes, some of the nobles rode horses into the battle and then got off and fought on foot as infantry. So Everything that you know about knights wouldn't have been known by, by Arthur, but these stories were known by the knights at the time, and knights did try and live up to it. Let's be honest, they basically, they weren't allowed to kill peasants either because it was seen as dishonourable, not because they cared about their lives, and also there was, there was nothing in it for them. So basically, the idea was to clash with a, a knight like me on the other side and we shall do battle and yada 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 and it all sounds very romantic the reality is of course life isn't quite like that and also this stuff about courtly love this unrequited love and things like that there's plenty of examples of people having affairs or spreading gossip or you know just killing the other guy and taking their wife there's nothing nice about this at all so but it is interesting this idea of this kind of mythological version of a knight still exists today 
there is this sort of misty-eyed look of, aren't they noble? Aren't they good? And all you have to do is have a passing look at medieval history and you realise it just wasn't like that. And obviously, as longbows started to fade out in the 1400s, we start getting more and more firearms and particularly cannons. And now you're starting to break up these sort of cavalry formations. So they are basically, by 1500, a very outdated form of of a way to, to do war. It's not to say there wasn't cavalry moving forwards, but also society itself was changing. So the idea of a knight really was dead by the time you get to the get into the 1500s. The other thing that's worth pointing out that you'll see on something like the models of the Bretonian knights, and you know, do you know what versions of it, even on the Age of Sigmar stuff as well, is you do get some really elaborate headgear. Now, what's important to tell you on that is it was not metal, because if you got if you're wearing a helmet and on top of that you're also wearing a steel image of let's say a dragon well that's probably another 10 pounds of metal and it's also on your head which is going to make it lull a bit this is not a good idea so this stuff did exist but actually it was papier mache very very light so basically it was built up modeled very light and then it was painted and so yeah of course it was going to take horrific damage in an actual battle but that's not the point. The point was, at least initially, we can tell which side everybody's on. Once we get into the era of gunpowder, that's why you have everybody kind of just agreed, right? The, the, the British, they get to wear red coats. The French, they're going to wear blue coats. Uh, the Austrians, they're going to have white. So just on a battlefield covered in gunpowder and smoke, it's like you've got a vague idea where your army was. But in the medieval version, just, you know, because things are fairly fluid on the battlefield, it's like everybody knew that this particular person had like a, a swan head on the top of, the, you know, that's my lord. It's the swan-headed guy. Everybody follow him. So it may look ridiculous. It may look exaggerated on something like a a model from Games Workshop, but actually something like that really did exist, but it existed for a very, very short period of time. It was not how a king or knight would be decked out in a battle in, let's say, the year 1200. So when we do talk about things like the War of the Roses or the end of the Hundred Years' War, it's actually, a, it's only a few decades where we have the full plate armour and everything, all the other pageantry you associate with knights going on. And even by then, there are things like cannons and guns going off on battlefields, which are... Turns out some of this armour may be very good at stopping things like arrows and swords, but they're not necessarily bulletproof. There are a number of breastplates where you can clearly see that the bullet has gone through or the cannonball has gone through. And let's be honest, a cannonball isn't going to be stopped by a thin piece of metal. So there we go. That is knights in the world of the old Warhammer, things like Warhammer Fantasy Battle and Age of Sigmar. I'm going to say in sort of six to eight weeks, watch out for Knights Part 2, where I talk about Warhammer 40,000. As always, I'm at Gemdaduchu on Twitter. And please, please, you know, tell me, are you enjoying these ones? Give me follow-up comments. I, I love it when people sort of say, oh, listen to that one, that made me laugh, or didn't know that, that's great. Or have you considered one on this? So, you know, I'm, I'm open to suggestions, particularly in the world of Warhammer. So thank you very much, everybody. Please, if you could share this. If you could share my tweets about the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. If you could subscribe to the podcast in you know whatever format you're listening to it on, thank you very much. Give us a review. It's been a long time since, we, since we've had reviews online. Give us a review. Give us five stars, please. All this stuff helps to just spread the word. That's it from me. And as always, another episode coming soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.